saying our thesis is that vertical integration doesn't work unless the government forces you to do it. And there's a reason why they force you to do it. They force you to do it because when they're transitioning from an illicit or a legal market to a legal market, they want to understand the supply chain of how cannabis works. And the best way to understand that is to say, you need to do everything yourself so that you can't blame it on anybody else when something leaks. So we know that from planting the seed all the way to selling it to the consumer, you've tracked everything in that process. Canada was like that as well. As legalization rolled around, vertical integration regulations got uh, taken off, and now companies can focus on what they do best. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Can you guys believe that we are in 2021? Holy shit. Thanks for joining the To Be Blunt podcast. I am really really happy that we are in a new year. I think um, for better or worse, you know, whether 2020 was the worst year of your life or it taught you some things and you're grateful for it. I mean, that's definitely the camp that I'm in. I always try to operate out of gratitude and abundance, but I get it. 2020 definitely sucked. So let's hope and work towards a wonderful 2021. And so with that said, we're kicking off the new year, kicking off our 31st episode. Welcome. If you are just joining us, I have 30 other really great episodes from last year that I encourage you to go listen to. And if this is your first episode tuning in, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. I will kind of reintroduce myself. My name is Shada Tarabi, and I am the host of this podcast. And I'm based in Austin, Texas, where I operate my own family retail CBD brand. We also have an e-commerce shop, so we're shipping nationwide. But this podcast is really a place for us to have open dialogue. I bring in industry professionals who are excelling in their particular area of the market, and we have a really transparent conversation. And so today's guest, Narbe, is the CEO of Canopy Rivers, which is a venture capitalist firm in Canada. You heard me correct. Oh, Canada. And, you know, I don't know a ton about the Canadian cannabis industry. And so I've been tracking what their company has been doing. They've been making quite a splash both in Canada as well as just, you know, internationally when it comes to cannabis. They've invested in some really key CPG brands as well as have just shown to be a dominant force in helping drive some of this innovation in cannabis through investments. And so today's conversation touches on the Canadian cannabis market. We get into where Canopy Rivers is headed for 2021 and really just peel back the curtain of kind of what we can expect to see happening kind of at a macro scale. I think, again, this show is meant to really help provide insight into different areas that you can ultimately apply back to your own brand or business. So thanks for listening to the intro of this episode. Please stay tuned to the whole thing because there's a lot of good tidbits in there. In fact, Narbe mentions... Texas as being an interesting market that he's keeping his eye on. So I'll just kind of leave it at that and we will welcome him to the show now. 
My name is Narby Alexander, and I'm the president and CEO of Canopy Rivers. We are a venture capital platform within the cannabis sector. We look at making investments, minority investments, all across the cannabis uh, value chain all around the world. So anywhere from the U.S., Canada, Europe, Latin America, South Africa, New Zealand, everywhere. We, we've looked at China. We've looked at businesses everywhere. How I got into this industry is taking way back to my, my original background. I started off, I'm a CPA by training, never really practiced, uh, went into consulting and M&A, um, moved into the tech startup world, really like technology, joined a startup, moved to uh, a large telco in Canada, and then went to venture capital. So worked at Mars Innovation, which is one of the largest incubators within Canada. So early stage technology companies. And then I moved and spent a uh, bulk of my career at Omer's Ventures, which is the largest technology VC venture capital uh, firm in Canada. A lot of successful exits, uh, raised over a billion dollars, did Shopify early on. That became a huge success. Uh, one of the, the biggest darling of the Canadian tech sector and, and really was uh, really entrenched into te technology. Um, uh, got really deep into Internet of Things, so sensor-based technologies, got deep into artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, very technical aspects of, of things. So the ability to really dumb things down and understand what's going on without having a technical background, because as I mentioned, I was a CPA by training. And uh, what fascinated me about the cannabis industry, what, what, is, what was annoying me about the technology industry at the time, which was there's a lot of money on the sidelines of technology. So these venture high capital platforms were popping up everywhere, hoarding a lot of cash, raising a lot of capital. Because of all the successes you were hearing about Facebook and Shopify and now Airbnb and, and so many others. And um, there was so much money on the sidelines, but not enough companies that uh, were forming and growing fast enough to take that money. So when you have a supply demand imbalance, it means that deals were companies were going, uh, investors were going to deals very early. Uh, they were taking on higher valuations and it was becoming a, a little bit more of an adverse selection situation versus what we had seen before, which was find great companies and invest in them. So I was looking at the cannabis side and a friend of mine who was one of the founders of Canopy Rivers, uh, working with Bruce, uh, pinged me on it and said, hey, you should look at the cannabis sector, be interested in it. And at the time, I wasn't that deep into legalization or what was, what was going on. It took me about seven months of research, of going to conferences, of really understanding what's out there to really create my own thesis of why I should be entering this industry. And the idea there was that it was nascent that there wasn't many intellectual corporate entities there. It was more so a, a hobby or people who liked cannabis as a consumer and wanted to get into the business, but there wasn't that institutional type investor out there. So what would happen is that, and this is going back to 2017, early 2018, if you were a cannabis company and you wanted to raise capital, you couldn't go to a venture fund because it's illegal and the stigma still exists and they have social responsibility in investing. So you had to go raise money from an angel investor. And that angel investor wanted to get liquidity out of the company, as in they wanted to get their money back and the return. So they would stipulate that I'll give you the money, I'll give you a check, how much, uh, however much you want, but you have to go public at a certain date. And that really hindered operators because once you're public and you haven't built your business model yet, you're really stuck under a, a rock and a hard place where um, it's very hard to explain yourself to the public market. So the idea was there was like, let's create a, venture capital platform that's institutional, like a Silicon Valley type thinking of long-term, like what's going to be disruptive in the long-term and invest in that. And that, that's the, the path that we go forward on it. So joined uh, Canopy Rivers in 2018 as uh, the, the vice president of business development. 
six months after got promoted to president, six months after that got given president and CEO, um, and, and Bruce Linton relinquished his, uh, his role there. So I'm really happy with uh, that type of progress there and what we've done um, and, and rode the roller coaster of cannabis up and down for the last uh, two years, which has really put some battle scars on anybody who's been in the industry for that period of time. So it's been a fun ride. That sounds like you've been front and center to a lot of, I mean, to use the word, the growth of really the Canadian cannabis market. And so before we talk about some of the recent news that's happened with your business recently, I want to get a picture from you on Canada's cannabis laws. What does that look like? I mean, medical, recreation, how accessible is it? I also maybe will have you kind of touch on to a little bit of your portfolio pieces through Canopy Rivers because it really has a, a wide breadth. I think what I love from my position, obviously I mentioned before we were recording and my listeners know I own a CBD retail brand and an e-commerce business, but being in Texas, we're a new market. And so we just got legalization to grow hemp. I mean, we're not even in the full on legalization of the full plant access like y'all are in, in Canada. But with that said, there's obviously so many applications beyond just a traditional CPG consumer package product, right? And so I think there's agricultural applications. There's obviously um, just different. I saw one of your uh, portfolio taglines was like hardware and just interesting stuff to me that you don't really hear or see um, talked about as much as pieces of the industry. And so again, just kind of at a high level, what's going on in Canada in regards to cannabis? Yeah, so if I take you back to October 18th, uh, 2018, or 16th, 2018, October 2018 is when we legalized uh, federally cannabis. So after that date, uh, it was legal to consume cannabis, to hold on to cannabis, to buy cannabis, everything, recreational, full legalization. And at the time, everyone thought that because Canada was one of the top first G7 countries to legalize, everyone, everything was going to happen back to back to back. It didn't happen like that. It could have happened if, if COVID didn't take place, uh, but COVID really slowed things down. Um, so in Canada, you're able to uh, go to the store and a dispensary and buy cannabis. You're able to, in some areas, uh, smoke outside and consume outside. Uh, you can uh, gift for friends. You can, you, you can do a lot. It, it is age-gated. You have to be over 19 years of age to, to access it, similar to, to alcohol, but you can do everything that you want. And you can do edibles, beverages, uh, hash, uh, extracts, dry flour, uh, everything of that sort. So it's, it's, it's full fair game for, from that perspective. But the benefit there is, is that when you have full-on legalization, similar to what we're expecting in the U.S. to come forth um, someday soon, uh, is that you have full banking support, you have full bankruptcy support, you have full insurance support. Uh, you kind of have the backing of every, everything that any other business could do. With the caveat that some of the advertising platforms, because they're based out of the U.S., like the Googles and the Facebooks, you don't have access to because it goes through the U.S., which means it's federally legal from that standpoint. But for the most part, you can do everything that you want, um, and that really helps out. So you have a lot of cash that you can raise because now any institutional investor can invest in you. Uh, and, and likewise, you can put that cash into doing better clinical studies, more R&D programs, and just really getting to the nuts and bolts of like what the plant is that we haven't been able to touch for 95 years, which is the bulk of industrialization that we've seen in the world. Um, and now we get to actually see that. So it's been, it's been quite the interesting time. Uh, I am extremely bullish about the U.S. I am very bullish about Texas as well. I think Texas, like speaking to some of the larger agricultural giants and greenhouse producers, 
if Texas is where a lot of the cannabis is going to grow upon a federal legalization or if Texas opens its doors up because of the weather, the amount of sunlight you get per day, the, the, the humidity that, that, that exists within uh, the, the state, it's, it's prime for let's grow in Texas and let's give away to the rest of the U.S. Same with Arizona. So um, it's uh, you need to have that type of a, of a lens of what's going to happen when the entire U.S. opens up instead of I want to build a facility in downtown New York City, which doesn't work in the long run in order to, to have that moat around your business going forward. So kind of on that vein and talking and reflecting on kind of what I was asking in regards to your portfolio clients, what are some of the more exciting projects or businesses that you're seeing in the cannabis industry pop up, whether it's in Canada or beyond? Like basically what are people doing from a, a uh, from a cannabis perspective that's cool that they're coming to you and saying, hey, we need money to fund this to go grow this thing? Yeah, so there's, three cool areas that we like that we're, we're really deep into at this point in time. One is on the technology and software side. So we're investors in LeafLink. We're also investors in Headset. And Headset, for example, is a company where they gather a, a point of sales data from something like 90% of the point of sales systems that are out there. And they pull that information together and they give back that information to brands and retailers and venture capital funds and hedge funds and CPG, large CPG companies that aren't touching cannabis uh, in order to tell them like, this is what's, what the tell is showing us. This is what people are buying. They're buying uh, COVID hit. They're not buying one gram pearls anymore. They're buying 0.5 grams because they don't want to share with anybody. Like the, the pricing has dropped by 20% since X date because of Y reason. So it's a lot of insight of, of what's going on. I found that when we, I joined the cannabis industry, we were lacking the data. So a sense of, what is going on? Like, what are people buying? And everyone was shooting uh, darts at a wall, not knowing uh, why they're doing what they're doing. And they're taking hypotheses that aren't based off of data, but based off of what they think is right. And we know from traditional businesses that you can't do that. You need to base it off of data. So Headset came into play. These are the founders of Leafly, uh, which had a very successful technology exit to, to privateer back in the day. As soon as their lockup was done, they went and created Headset. They got an investment from Nielsen which is the, the, the behemoth that does this for from a CPG perspective. So they've been very successful. So I think the data and technology side is very interesting. The second piece that I think is very interesting is the biotech side, not biotech, plant science side. Uh, on the plant science side, if you take a step back, we haven't touched cannabis for 95 plus years of prohibition. We don't know what its properties are anymore. We don't like as, as much as we could have known how to have been legalized. So we just turned it on over the last five years, call it, of saying that, yeah, let's now look at this. So we're missing on decades and decades of research that's been done on vegetables, on fruits, on tobacco plants, and everything of that sort. So there's a whole array of R&D that's taking place on how do we make genetics more bulletproof to pests and, uh, and mold, and, um, and how do we make yield stronger, and how do we make it so that you can grow that same genetic in uh, Southern California or Northern California, as well as you can grow it in Canada, or you can grow it in Afghanistan, and, and you're going to get the, the same quality and the same product, similar to how you see tobacco and, and how a Marlboro tastes the same no matter where you go in the world or how a Big Mac tastes the same no matter where you go in the world. So that's kind of like the gold standard of what plant science is, 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 is chasing after. And the third piece that's really interesting is the biosynthetic side. So anecdotally, if we look at aspirin, aspirin was derived from the bark of a willow tree. But you don't see any willow tree cultivation facilities anywhere. Nobody's growing a bunch of trees in order to extract something out of the bark. Instead, uh, we rely on lab-created uh, aspirin, which is 
let's create the same compound in the lab using uh, biological resources being yeast. Um, let's teach yeast to, to create cannabinoids and we'll kill off everything else and just leave that pure cannabinoid that's there. And that's the future of cannabis as we see it in the pharmaceutical lens, where you're not reliant on the plant anymore, we're just reliant on what you want to grab. And our thesis there is that you're not going to see as much of that on the THC and CBD side as much as you're going to see it on the 98 other cannabinoids that we, we just don't see readily available in the plant as much as we want to. Um, so that, that's a very interesting focus for us as well. And I think when you look at those three businesses, and I overlay the fourth area that we're really focused on is brands, uh, because we just don't see that consumer affinity that, or the, the brand loyalty that we see in traditional CPG. Uh, those are the, the four key areas that we're really hyper-focused into. Those all sound like all things that are on my radar. So it sounds like I'm on the right track, which makes me feel good. I actually had one of the directors from Headset on the podcast, Jocelyn Sheltra, a couple episodes ago. So definitely am very familiar with both that business, but also everything you said. Again, just kind of like highlight for the listeners. It's so wild how mature this industry is and yet how immature the functions of running a business in other areas just are lacking in this space, like data. Like you said, I'm a marketer by trade. I actually come from technology myself. I did corporate tech, branding and marketing, and we didn't do anything without data. And yet you have this industry that's kind of like you said, I think this is right. But I think to also give us a break, that's reflected because especially using the United States as an example, every state is essentially operating under different laws. And so we don't have the accessibility to research, which I hear you. I think that will open up a lot of obvious applications, understanding. It just will impact so many areas. But really, it's just like it's this new plant. And and so you said something that I am curious about just because, again, I try to pay attention so much to what's happening. But I think there's just always new information, especially in different, you know, markets. And so in America and especially Texas, which also I appreciate your uh, hat tip on Texas, that makes me feel good about our state. I definitely am proud to be from Texas, but we just grew our first year of hemp flower and it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting, but CBG is a big cannabinoid in Texas. That's specifically what the flower is being grown under or that type of cannabinoid. Another big one for us in Texas is Delta 8 THC. So we're seeing a lot more products being produced with that cannabinoid specifically. CBN, CBG, like I said, those are really the the most recent minor cannabinoids that are emerging. I'm curious if those are on par with what you're seeing, maybe at a Canadian level, but also at a just international level of what you're observing from these emerging cannabinoids. Yeah, I'd add two more in there. I totally agree with the ones you mentioned, CBC and THCV. So those are the other two that, that we've seen a lot of uh, that creeping up. And THCV, nobody really talks about it that much, but it's an appetite suppressant instead of it opens your appetite like THC does. So uh, that could be used in uh, weight loss drugs, for example. And that, that's something that um, is a huge, huge industry, multi-billion dollar industry around the world and uh, just matter of clinical research. So we actually take a step back. We have like these five waves that we 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 have on our website of how cannabis, uh, the 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 life cycle or the industry is going to evolve. And the fourth wave we're in currently between the second and third, which is ancillary to CPG. The fourth wave is uh, pharmaceuticals, and we know that there's about 400 or 500 patents that are owned by the pharmaceutical giants that nobody talks about, but someone someone dug into it one time and and, and wrote about it. 
and and if you look at it from that standpoint of if we go through this clinical research time frame, which is like 10 to 15 years to really understand how this can not anecdotally, but scientifically affect the human body, then that there's a whole vertical that we just barely have touched. Like Epidiolex is probably the only drug that we've seen from GW Pharmaceuticals that even remotely looks at that. And that's just basically CBD oil that, that has backing from the FDA. Do you see that acknowledgement? Because it's very apparent if you're in the industry, obviously knowing that big pharma is is there and that there are patents on, I think, variations of these cannabinoids. And I, I mean, if you get into the history of cannabis, there used to be, I've seen, you know, Bayer used to produce a THC type of concoction. I, cannabis used to be seen as more medicinal than anecdotal. So on that point, you're right. But I think there is also the concern that, I mean, it scares me a little bit that they're just going to start producing this in a lab and how will that compete with the real plant and how does that maybe hurt, I'm going to say maybe like smaller entities from wanting to play in the industry and taking advantage of creating products and building brands around these cannabinoids? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a big difference between medical and recreational use. On the medical side, um, if you're a cancer patient, like you, you it's, it's weird that um, to me, it's weird that cancer patients smoke cannabis because if you have something like lung cancer, like why are you smoking any, anything that's heat that goes into your lungs damages it over a long period of time, even if it's a vaporizer that's, that's warm that goes into your lungs. From the medical standpoint, having the pharmaceutical companies jump in there and do those testing, and they have a lot of risk on the line relative to smaller companies who, if they fizzle out, nobody really hears about them. That, that, that's a very big positive for us. It also helps take away the stigma when you know that, 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 that um, there's clinical trials being done and clinical trials cost tens of millions of dollars, every single one of them. Uh, and, and getting through that entire cycle of clinical trials is about like probably just less than a hundred million dollars. So it really helps the, the industry go forward. I think that there's never going to be a time where consumers on the recreational side will, will want to work with a pharmaceutical company. They're going to want to see brands that speak to them, that understand them, that um, brands that are obsessed with the consumer and how consumers see the product and how, how they see uh, consumption. And it's something that exists in the CPG world, not so much in the pharmaceutical world. I don't think that ever gets taken away. Uh, but what I do think is that over a period of time, just because of the natural progression of any industry, you're going to see maturation take shape. And you're going to have your Coke and Pepsis of the cannabis world exist where it's, you can have a LaCroix beverage that, that, that has a niche following behind it. Uh, but that might get bought out by Coke and Pepsi. And uh, at the end of the day, like those are the two main companies and we're going to get there. And I think it's going to take maybe 10 or 15 years until we get there, until the brands are hashed out and, uh, and consumers have tried the, the same brand over and over again to say, that's what I like. That's what I don't like. This is consistent every single time I try it. It's going to take some time. So this is the perfect time, in my opinion, to start a business with the cannabis sector, especially with the economic downturn that's taking place. Um, you, you have time on your hands to, to really think about what you want to do. And then when things start popping up and we figure out a way out of COVID, then you ride the wave of growth and how fast cannabis is proliferating in the U.S. and you become a successful entity from that standpoint as well. So definitely think this is the best time to start a business. No, I really appreciated that breakdown. And I never want to be like, you know, that person who's like, oh, I don't want it to grow because then the big people are going to get involved. Like, obviously, like you said, those players have money and resources that absolutely will help further legitimize this plant. I think what you said 
really like that stuck with me was just the differentiation between medicine and recreation. And I might even be so bold as to say, I agree with you in the sense that I don't really fully understand America's using America's because when I understand a little bit, I don't understand the medical program as is because it's essentially the same plant. I mean, I have friends who are growers. I have friends who are bud tenders and I, I started picking at it asking, you know, what really makes medical marijuana any different than the products I buy as a recreation user? Is there any differentiation? And, and to be honest, there's not right. And so it's this, mask of, which I think this is where my brain starts spinning. Is it really medicinal in the smoking state? Or was that a way for us to pass cannabis into the mainstream with the guise of medicine? Obviously it's medicinal. We're not discrediting that. It's just to your point, obviously smoking is not the most medicinal, but people like to enjoy it. And so I find that we're in this kind of crosshair situation of just using the word medicine to further promote something that the way that your application reflects of it actually being owned by the pharmaceutical companies and them actually scientifically producing, creating consistency, doing the testing, that makes way more sense as a medical program, but that's obviously not how America is currently rolling out cannabis. So again, from my perspective, people keep coming to me in my retail and they're like, oh, weed's going to be legal in Texas one day. Great. You're going to turn into a dispensary. And I'm like, maybe yes, but there's a progression, right? You don't just go and maybe you do, maybe, you know, something I don't, you know, in my opinion, you don't just go straight to recreation. You have to have a progression of something medical and because Texas's medical program isn't fully built out. It's just, it's hard for me as somebody who's observed the industry to actually think that we would just jump straight to recreation. But then what you're saying is we shouldn't even really be in medicine if we want to just be a recreation brand potentially. quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between medicine and therapy, because in some situations, you could say that medicine to me is over-the-counter medicine or uh, prescription medicine, and you see people that have Alzheimer's or people that have serious cancers um, that, 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 are, that are really just beating their body up so hard, and they take CBD or cannabis, and they usually take it at extremely high levels as well as per, on a per milligram basis. Um, that, that to me is medicine. Uh, to me, the therapy side is I have anxiety and I want to treat this anxiety through cannabis. So if I take Canada as an example, like prior to legalization, it was 100% medical uh, because the medical markets were open um, and everyone was uh, touting like, these are, this is a, the patient list I have. These are the clinics that I have. Medical is going to be here. Medical is going to be here. Fast forward to now, we find that if you take the, the consumer base itself, which is about 20% of the entire Canadian population is a cannabis consumer, to break that down, 58% of it are recreational users. 31% are do, say they use it for both medical and recreational purposes. And again, medical is the therapy and, and everything else mixed together. And only 11% actually use it for pure medical purposes, as in, I don't want to take this, like just like Robitussin or Buckley's or whatever the, the, the cough medicine is, taste horrible and I'm taking it because I have to take it. 
same situation here. Like it's not what I want to do. So one out of 10 people use it for purely medical purpose. And that's very different from you look at a medical state like Florida, where everyone says, yep, I'm using it for medical purposes. When you, when you do drill that back and you create a recreational adult use program, you do find that a lot of those medical patients, and I'm using quotations, which you can see, but the, the listeners can't see, are actually recreational users uh, that, that are using a means to, like, they want it for therapeutical purposes, and that's what they're using it for. Yeah, I think that's just an interesting observation. I'm hoping people are just paying attention. The podcast for me is never like a, and we finally arrived at the answer. It's more just, you know, how do you start to navigate and pick apart? And and you're obviously very knowledgeable because you're highlighting all these states that I like to think again, that I have some understanding of. And it is just crazy to see you know, just how certain states are legalizing and what they're legalizing. So Florida is an interesting one for me too, just because I think that they, to my knowledge, they have to be completely vertically integrated. Um, Does Canada have any laws like that around how businesses are operating in terms of vertical integration or how accessible is it to actually get a license to grow or retail? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll start off by saying our thesis is that vertical integration doesn't work unless the government forces you to do it. And there's a reason why they force you to do it. They force you to do it because when they're transitioning from an illicit or illegal market to a legal market, they want to understand the supply chain of how cannabis works. And the best way to understand that is to say, you need to do everything yourself so that you can't blame it on anybody else when something leaks. So we know that from planting the seed all the way to selling it to the consumer, you've tracked everything in that process. Canada was like that as well. As legalization rolled around, vertical integration regulations got got taken off and now companies can focus on what they do best. So to me, why I say vertical integration doesn't work in the long run is that to be expected to be a farmer for through cultivation, to be a food ingredient manufacturer through extraction, to be a CPG company uh, doing marketing and sales functions primarily, to to some companies are doing pharmaceutical to do try to get FDA approval for stuff. And then lastly to own your own retail chain. You're, there's capital issues of how can you get that much money to be the best at everything. There's also talent issues. Like how do you find the best person in each of those categories that I can do it all? And if you're vertically integrated and you're, you're planting for that, the crop for that uh, harvest and it turns out to be 15% THC or your harvest gets, half of it gets ruined. Well, guess what? You're vertically integrated. You have to sell that. You have to sell that to the, end, to the consumer or you take the hit. But if you're, if we look at that vertical integration doesn't work and we're going to go into horizontal integration, which is let's do the one, two, three things very well. And you're a CPG company that's contracting out a cultivator to make cannabis for you. And that cultivator comes and says, my crop screwed up. Uh, here's 15% THC. You can say, no, it doesn't follow my contract. It doesn't follow the service level agreement that we have between both parties. I can't give that to my consumer. It's not going to sell. You're going to hurt my brand. I don't want it. Similar to how a, a candy and confectionery company, Mars, if they have shitty chocolate that comes to their door, they're going to be like, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to put this in my product. Like I've spent hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars on educating the consumer to tell them every time you come to me, you get the same taste. And if you screw that up, like I'm not going to take the hit for that, send that back and eat the cost. And that, that, that's where the future is headed. But to get there, vertical integration needs to exist at first. Because it needs to give governments an understanding of the process and the supply chain to get them comfortable with it. And then slowly they'll take their foot off the, the gas and let the private sector really take hold. That was great. I appreciated that. I think that that is kind of a, 
one of those hot subjects in the industry because you do have certain states, which I didn't realize it was more of the government mandating, forcing it to be that way for their benefit. But it sounds like it is ultimately for our benefit because it gives them the proper structure and framework for looking at how we can roll it out and manage it from a private sector. But knowing that there's just two sides to everything, obviously some people love that it's vertically integrated. It's a pride thing. They love to say they grow it, they extract it, they're the you know, bottler, they're the retailer. And then, I mean, my brand in particular is not vertically integrated and I choose it that way because I am not a farmer. I don't want to have a farm. I don't want to own a farm. And so I think as we look towards specifically in lieu of federal legalization, but state legalization, I have to look at, okay, well, how did Florida roll it out? How did Oklahoma roll it out? What's California doing? How do we think Texas is going to roll it out? Hopefully Texas takes cues from, you know, the positives and not, you know, tries to enforce or something that makes it more challenging for us to exist or be successful, but it is still very much a gamble, but still with that question, what is, um, I guess, what are you seeing from a Canadian perspective in terms of like licensing? Like how are people having the accessibility of getting into the market? Because I've been interviewing some people prior to your episode airing who are from specifically California's cannabis market. And I think we all kind of understand how massive their market is and how difficult it is to get a license, which to me seems to be like the first step that any brand would need to take. And so I know people are listening who are maybe thinking, oh, I would love to, you know, own a brand one day or create something. But I mean, what's the reality of somebody getting a license specifically in Canada? Yeah, in Canada, getting a license has become easier and easier. At first, it was very difficult. So uh, this is wave one of our five waves. We think cultivation really makes sense when you're, you're one of the first ones at the door and you have a license in a limited, uh, limited license state like called Maryland, where there's not that many out there. Over time, like you see in Canada, where there's 250 licensees of cultivation, if you're 251 and you're just getting your license, how do you compete with those uh, th- those existing companies that have scaled, they've gone through the experience curve, they know how to do it, they've failed at some harvests, they've succeeded at other ones, they've got the right team together, and now they're just becoming the low-cost leader? How do you compete against that? And that's that's the same thing. Like So, so in Canada, it's easy to get the license, and that's, that's your the answer to your question, but the bigger question becomes like, why would you get a license now? Why not focus on what the, what the industry needs, specifically in Canada? In the U.S., especially on the eastern side, getting a license is everything. Like you're one of the first ones there, a huge pent-up demand in that state. You get that license, you can go out there. So to kind of pull those two together, if you're a business in the U.S. in a limited license state and you got your license and you're operating, at the back of your mind, you need to understand that in the long term, your license doesn't mean shit because it's going to, the barriers to entry are going to drop and it's going to be easier and easier to get a license. And what really matters is can you make money off of that business and how do your economics look? So can you dial back that vertical integration and focus on saying that these are the one, two, three things that do very well? Uh, and maybe it's cultivation. Maybe it's extraction you're really good at, or maybe it's the brand piece or maybe it's the retail piece, but this is what I'm going to focus on. And now that vertical integration is going away, Let's outsource everything else and focus on that. And you see that in the tech industry all the time. If you went to the, the, the beginning of the dot-com boom and bust, um, you're, you're a company that was creating a, let's not CBD because it didn't exist, like it wasn't a market back then, but let's say you're creating a website that sold uh, mugs. I'm just looking at my coffee mug right now. And you'd have to do everything yourself. You'd create the HTML code from scratch. You'd own the server farms. One of your guest rooms would be a bunch of computers. You'd have to create the payment rails on your own as well to accept the payment 
let alone nobody has smartphones, so who knows where that's going to go. Fast forward to now, you have Shopify, PayPal, Amazon Web Services. You don't need to think of those things. You're just thinking of, I need to find my mugs and I need to sell them, and then I'm thinking marketing only. And that's where cannabis is going to go as vertical integration laws go away and getting licenses are easier. And then it just becomes about who does it the best and who does it at the cheapest cost. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point because I think for a lot of us, there is that fear. I mean, obviously you want to be the first mover. I understand wanting to get that license, but then at the other end of the spectrum, at least personally speaking, I feel that being a first mover, I'm oftentimes looking around and realizing everybody's looking at me in terms of what to do, especially in a market like Texas, where I mean, it's just so new and we don't really have leaders that have defined themselves yet. And so when you're trying to navigate the market, it is just a little bit of, well, I think I'm supposed to get the license and I think I'm supposed to do all these things, but you're still, it's like the other shoe hasn't dropped. We don't really know what that industry is going to be like, but I appreciated the tech reference because just working in tech, it kind of like gave me a little bit of peace of like, oh yeah, I remember like when we used to do everything on our own and now you're right. Now you can kind of start outsourcing different components as people have gotten, you know, better access to the web. Now you're able to build applications and have better tools. And so I think it's definitely encouraging. I want to make sure that we talk about the big news that has kind of been published recently. I don't necessarily know how to frame it other than saying you used to be a part of Canopy Growth, which is, was that the parent company? And how did Canopy Rivers fit into that? Because y'all are the VC, but they seem to be more on the actual CPG brand side. And so what was that relationship? And now what is the current relationship? Yeah. So if you take back to the beginning in 2017, originally we were part of Canopy Growth. We were an in-house venture capital platform. We spun out and became a public company in 2018 um, as we saw the, the markets becoming frothy and there was capital at the table there. KP Growth owned 27% of us uh, from an economics perspective, and we had multi-voting shares uh, so that we could never get bought out by someone else. Uh, that, that gave them 84% uh, ownership from a voting perspective of the company. So there's a lot of restrictions that, that you have when, when that takes place. Like They're invested by Constellation. They're on the NASDAQ. They're on the TSX. Um, it's really hard for them to invest in the U.S., which is why you see these exotic structures taking place. So um, we, we we see the opportunity in the U.S., especially when Biden got elected. And so we wanted to, to really get those, get more strategic flexibility in order to attack the U.S. market. So um, a couple of days ago, we announced that we were selling our interests in Terracent, Tweet, Trilot, and Vert Mirabelle. So three out of three out of our 17 portfolio companies to Canopy Growth at an implied total transaction value of $297 million, uh, representing an invested uh, return on invested capital of 5.6 times and an internal rate of return or return of 101% per year that we own those investments. So incredible, incredible amount of success from uh, selling those three companies. It's our business to sell our positions and take that money and invest in new positions. So um, part of those proceeds and the money that we got, we took that and we bought back the shares that Canopy Growth owned, which eliminates those dual class structure of multi-voting shares and subordinate voting shares and really improves our strategic flexibility. So we're going to have a significantly bolstered balance sheet at closing. We're going to be able to explore new uh, opportunities for investment, for acquisition, for mergers that we couldn't do before with a particular focus on the U.S. that we couldn't do before as well. So 
very excited to see what 2021 brings us and the ability to have that much cash and be uh, open to, to, to attacking the U.S. Uh, and really diving deeper and deeper into some of the states that we've been following for quite some time. And we, we have a plan that we want to unveil to the public in the new year that, that gives you an understanding of what we're going to do with that capital. So really excited and, and stay tuned to, to hear more about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations on that move. It obviously frees you up to be more focused in other markets, which I know you're not going to probably share too terribly much, but I have to ask, you know, what excites you about the U.S. market compared to fully existing in Canada? I mean, Canada's a big country too. You have a lot of consumers. I was also going to maybe caveat and ask, is 20% a lot for Canadian cannabis consumption or, or could that be higher? And so how, you know, why not go after the 25% of Canada instead of getting into America? I just, it's, it's, it begs a lot of questions. So I'm just curious. We already have a portfolio of Canadian cultivators, extractors, brands, uh, and, and, and the like. So when you look at the Canadian market, you have 20% that are consumers. You have 20% that are intenders, as in they, they intend to use it for the next 12 months. 60% of those have tried it. And then you have another 60% that are uh, rejectors, as in I never want to try it. But you've also seen 25% of those 60% try it before, mainly uh, homemade edibles with the data showing, which, as we know, there's probably a reason why you reject it is because you had a bad that trip off of that. So um, the Canadian market, we still believe in it, um, but there, there's so much value in the U.S. market to capture. You have 36 medical states, 15 recreational states. You have um, companies that are pumping cash. Uh, they're cash flow positive. You have uh, enterprise value to revenue multiples of four times in the U.S. versus seven times in, uh, in Canada. You have enterprise value to EBITDA multiples of 15 times in the U.S. versus close to 30 times in Canada. So um, think of it in the way that it's a bigger market. It's half the price of what you see in the Canadian market in terms of how much a company costs. And these companies are actually cash flow positive versus in Canada. You still see that struggle to get to cash flow positive. You put all those together, sprinkle in Biden administration coming in and talk about decriminalization, sprinkle in the more acts as well. And I sit on the NCIA board um, as a board member, as a, as a treasurer of the, the not-for-profit put that all together. This is a perfect storm to jump into. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of opportunity to be made. And we're just so grateful to be uh, thinking of getting in there and getting in there post closing of this transaction and, and just bringing the, the amount of knowledge that we've gained out of the Canadian and global markets into the U.S. and really helping shape that, providing capital to companies and really seeing this through all the way to federal legalization, which I believe is a, is a when, not an if. I couldn't agree more with you. I just wish I knew a little bit more on that timing. <laughs> Make me feel a lot more comfortable. No, I uh, I think it's exciting. I think, uh, yeah, watching just how it's rolled out in America has been, it's just been wild. I mean, especially being in Texas. I, I literally was born and raised here, never dreamed of cannabis ever being legal in my home state, let alone like being in the industry personally. And so to be here, it's just kind of like, whoa, we are in the middle of cannabis prohibition. It is happening and it's wild and exciting. And and so I guess parting thoughts, I'll ask you, you know, if there's anything else you want to add, but specifically as you're looking into specifically the American market, maybe this is applicable for anybody in cannabis, but just because I know I've got a lot of US listeners, of course, what are you looking for in terms of 
exciting brands that you would consider investing in or that you think are cool? I mean, I know you mentioned the kind of categories of types of brands or types of products or types of applications, but you know, what are the things that you're looking for? Is it education focus? Is it having, you know, a really good brand experience? Is it experiential stuff? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off by saying we look at what everyone else looks at, which is fundamentals, how are you making money, what your economics look like, do you have a social justice program in place, like all the, the, the typical things that any investor wants to look at when they're looking at the cannabis space. That stuff like you can find online, but I want to add a bit more to that because um, I just don't want to give that cookie-cutter response. What we're really looking at from the brand side is getting into the head of the operator um, and and really understanding how they see their consumer base. So the, the difference between strong CPG brands and weak CPG brands really comes down to how management and the company understands the consumer. And what we're looking for isn't a cannabis company. We're looking for a company that's consumer obsessed. Like they want to know everything about the consumer. They want to get in their minds. They want to understand what they like, what they dislike. They want to ask them, did you like that product? You didn't like it? My bad. We want, we want like companies that are hyper-focused on this is the problems that I want to solve for my consumer. And it's not, I just want to give them cannabis. It's that I want to solve for sleep. I want to solve for anxiety. I want to solve for uh, parting out or this is what, what, what the problem is that, are, that I'm trying to solve for a cannabis consumer. And I'm going to get in their heads. And I'm going to do everything I can to give them the best customer support, best customer service, understand the prototype of, of, of who my consumer is, and really get in their heads. And we're seeing some of that happen in California because it's so competitive that you really need to do that in order to stay afloat. Uh, we're also seeing that trickle over to the rest of the states as well. So when, when we're looking at brands, like we look at the operator. If I was to come to you and say, I have a CBD brand, I have it in mind, here's a nice polished deck, Could you, I'll sell you the business, the entire deck for $50,000, not even a lot of money. Chances are you're going to say, no, this is just a PowerPoint. What the fuck am I going to do with that? But if I said, okay, I've taken this deck and I've executed it, I've put a team together, I'm in ex- like six stores, can this be worth $50,000 now? Sure, you're getting there. So it's not about the idea, and it's really easy to say, I want to create a cannabis business. It's about the execution. And to get to the execution, you really have to dive into the head of the founders there. And that's the same type of investing that we see on Silicon Valley in the tech sector, but we just haven't really seen that happen in the cannabis space yet. And that's what we want to bring to the table with our entry into the U.S. That was the best thing you could have ever said. I mean, everything you said of this episode was gold. So I hope people are really getting a kick out of this episode. So seriously, thank you. But I think uh, you said a lot of things that I, again, I believe and I understand and I know, but that's the whole point of this podcast, right? It's like to kind of say it in someone else's voice and experience that these are the things that brands need to give a shit about. And because there are cookie cutter brands out there. I mean, you're right. This is, it's basic. It's like, this is what you need to do to succeed. And so those brands start, but those brands don't last. And so what I'm really caring about is personally building a brand that lasts, building a position in this industry that lasts, but also helping others along the way. And so that's really the point of these conversations is just to help encourage and give insight into, you know, the things that you and I are maybe a little bit more passionate about because that's what lights our souls on fire. And so I think in the same vein, there's, you know, many different areas that people can be in the cannabis industry. There's many different 
areas of education, of points of information, of points of research. And we're just scratching the surface. So it's hard to kind of know all of it, but it's nice to start to chip away at it through conversations like this. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to add anywhere that people can maybe connect with you or your brand online to get more information about what's going on? Yeah, you can, you can visit us at www.canopyrivers.com. You can look for me on Twitter at narb 87 Feel free to reach out to us. We're really nice people. We love to talk to entrepreneurs, learn about their business, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Everything you tell us stays within us. Uh, it educates us. It educates uh, the, the public as we put out more thought, uh, thought, thought leadership pieces out there. So again, really excited to be uh, part of the show. Uh, big fan of it. Wow. I honestly did not know where that episode was going to go when I first reached out to Narbe to interview him, but I'm really grateful that we were able to have that discussion because again, I just think, you know, Canada is really evolved when it comes to cannabis, the way that their healthcare and medical programs are rolled out period as a country are obviously something for other countries, specifically America to take note of. And I think watching how that has impacted their legal cannabis market is really fascinating. And then when you kind of add in the layer of man, like one day, wouldn't it be really freaking cool to be able to see brands, you know, kind of in both areas internationally kind of operating and doing um, what they do best. So kind of getting away from this vertical integration and being more specific towards a niche or area of focus and then being able to grow that brand internationally is just, it's really exciting. And we really are in the, you know, the formative years of cannabis. And so there's a lot more that we have to come. And I think looking to companies like Canopy Rivers, who are such um, leaders in the industry when it comes to where people are investing and spending money. And obviously you want to follow the money because that's (laughs) where people are going to be spending and purchasing and, and paying attention to. Money talks, if you haven't heard that saying, learn it, money talks. So I think these VC firms are really disruptive because they're spending money on brands that can help really push this market forward. And so with that said, thanks for listening to another episode of To Be Blunt. Welcome to 2021. We have a amazing roster of guests coming to you this year and we are just getting started. So buckle up and I will see you guys on the next episode. Thanks. Bye. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi. 